We have just sung together the most famous prayer that is known the world over. And many of us grew up in churches where we recited this prayer every single Sunday in our worship. Now, while that is not wrong to do, it is not the primary purpose that the Lord gave us this prayer. When Jesus opens in Matthew 6 and verse 9 and says, This then is how you ought to pray, the word how means in this way. Or what Jesus is saying to us is pray like this. So this prayer is not what we are to pray, these exact words. Rather, this prayer is how we should pray. The Lord's Prayer is really a guide or a model that teaches to us what prayer is and then how we pray. So it is sort of like a skeleton. It is very much like an outline that a preacher would bring into the pulpit uh, that he follows in his message. This skeleton or outline gives to us the elements of a well-balanced prayer life. I love what uh, Haddon Robinson, who is the teacher of preachers, has to say about this prayer. He says, the petitions of the Lord's Prayer cover all that we are to pray about. Whether we pray a long prayer or whether we pray a short prayer, we will never pray more than this prayer. And so this morning, as we come back to the Sermon on the Mount... You will notice that we are at that place where Jesus is now teaching us about prayer and he gives to us what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Now Jesus will tell us in this prayer that prayer is basically occupied with two very critical and yet simple things. We are to pray to the Father about the Father And then we are to pray to the Father about His family. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that prayer is occupied first and foremost with our Father. It is very interesting. In Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples actually come to Him and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Evidently, the Lord Jesus... Uh, shared this uh, example of prayer on many occasions and the disciples came and they said Lord would you teach us to pray so this is actually not the Lord's prayer but rather it is the disciples prayer and as we know a disciple is a Christ follower and Christ followers are far more occupied with God's concerns than they are with their own concerns and so what Jesus is telling us is first and foremost, if we are going to pray properly, our prayers must be centered on God's priorities. Let's open our Bibles this morning, shall we, to Matthew chapter 6. And let's look at this first aspect of prayer. And let's talk together this morning about how it is that we pray with God's priorities uppermost in our mind. Let's notice, uh, first of all, as we look at what the Savior says, that He tells us that we are to pray from a sense of acceptance 
by the Father. Uh, Jesus opens up this very wonderful prayer and he says, Our Father. Now it is generally understood that the Greek word that is used here, pater, which is the Greek word for father, is equivalent to the Aramaic word Abba. In fact, uh, we know from the Gospels that Jesus would use both words together when he addressed God. Uh, Jesus uh, spoke in Aramaic, which was a sister language to Hebrew, and when he would address God, he would use both the Aramaic word Abba, and then he would use the Greek word Father, so he would say Abba, Father. The disciples who were taught by Jesus later did the very same thing, for we find this expression, Abba Father, twice in Paul's letters, Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4 and verse 6. Now, Abba was the language that a little child would use in addressing that child's father. So it is a word that meant daddy or papa. Uh, my father was uh, born in 1918. He lost his dad when he was nine years of age. He never referred to his father as dad. He always called him Pa. Whenever he would refer to his father, it was always Pa, which is short for Papa. That's the word that is used here. That's what is meant by Abba or by Pater. Now in the ancient world, both amongst Jews and Greeks, to refer to God this way, it was presumptuous. Why, it was even scandalous. A familiar term amongst the Jews and even the Gentiles for God was considered entirely inappropriate. And so as you read your Old Testament, rarely will you find the word Father used in addressing God in prayer. In fact, the great prayers of the Old Testament do not address God as Father at all. Uh, go back and read Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. He does not use the word Father. Go to Daniel's great prayer of confession of sin as he thinks of the end of the 70 weeks of cap 70 years of captivity, and he does not use the word Father. Uh, think of Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1 as he prays and pours out his heart to God about rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. He does not use the word for Father. There is absolutely no evidence at all outside of our New Testament that anyone other than Jesus ever addressed God as Abba. Now let's just stop here and notice something very, very special. Right off the bat, we are being told something very special about God's attitude as we come to Him in prayer. Abba is a domestic term of affectionate intimacy. What this is telling us is that God is a God who is personal. He is a God who is caring. It speaks of the very same acceptance that a child has with their father. Twice in the Gospel of John, at John 3.35 and at John 5.20, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son. And as the unique Son of God, Jesus was fully conscious of His loving nearness and His implicit trust 
in God as his father. And now what the Bible is saying to us is because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus by faith in his salvation, we now have the same privilege of that same sense of intimacy before God and implicit trust as we draw near to him in closeness. I love what Hebrews 10.22 says. It says, let us therefore draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Because we have had our hearts sprinkled with blood and our bodies have been washed with pure water. And now because that is true, we come to God with a sense of loving acceptance. Do you know this week in my studies, one Bible student has said this, the whole miracle of divine grace is contained in the single word Father. Isn't that incredible? The whole miracle of divine grace is found in the single word Father. That sinners who were under the judgment of God as their judge. Now because of the great salvation that Jesus Christ has won for us at the cross, are now in a position of being children who can call God Papa or Daddy. That is the whole miracle of divine grace. Listen, I never tire of saying this. This is the greatest miracle that ever happens in this world today. Of all the miracles that would occur in our world today, no miracle ever comes close to the miracle of the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ brings to us so that we now are the children of God who can call God Papa or Daddy. In fact, I love how the Apostle John expresses the astonishment over this in 1 John 3 and verse 1. Look at his words and notice how they end with an exclamation point in 1 John 3 verse 1. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are exclamation point. The Apostle John is astonished at the miracle of divine grace that sinners under judgment now are children who call God Father. Do you know pagan, the pagan world actually sometimes understands this better than those of us who have been raised in church and are so familiar with these things. Uh, deep in the heart of Liberia, there was a missionary who baptized three Liberian converts. He said they were so far deep into Liberia that many of these African converts did not even know the continent was named Africa. And as these three converts came up out of the muddy water, their skin glistening in the afternoon sun, he said to them, what is the best thing about this experience? And one of those converts said this, 
here's the best thing about this experience. Behind this universe stands one God, not a great number of warring spirits as we had believed, but one God, and that God loves me. That's the greatest thing about this experience. And then I read another missionary who was teaching a Hindu convert about the Lord's Prayer. And as he taught this Hindu convert, this woman, about the Lord's Prayer, he began, Our Father who art in heaven. She stopped him right there. Stopped him cold. And she said this, If God is our Father, that is enough. There is nothing now to fear. Isn't that incredible? Here comes a Hindu out of a, a system of three million gods, fearful of whether they will accept her, making sacrifices to appease them. And now she's being taught the Lord's Prayer, and she hears our Father who art in heaven. And she says, stop right there. If God is our Father, that is enough. There is nothing now to fear. You see what Jesus is saying? You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Come to God with acceptance. God loves you. There is nothing now to fear. Abba, Father. Let's look at the second way that we pray with God's priorities. Secondly, we pray with expectation from the Father. We pray with expectation from the Father. As soon as we pray, our Father in heaven, we are reminded of something very, very critical. Jesus said that God's throne is heaven, that heaven is his throne. Uh, we see that back in Mark, Matthew 5 and verse 34. So if heaven is God's throne, what this means is God is a king. And so when we pray, we look up to a very, very mighty king who is far, far above us. So isn't there a wonderful balance here? Even though we come to God with a sense of loving intimacy, we do not come casually. We do not come to God and refer to him as our big buddy in the sky, do we? We do not call him the man upstairs, as we often hear people do. Rather, there's wonderful balance in this prayer. God is personal and caring, yet at the same time, God is awesome and God is great. And therefore, as we come before this Father, we come with tremendous respect and tremendous reverence. What is interesting, as we look at our New Testaments, one of the things we discover whenever this phrase, in heaven, is connected with prayer, it is associated with God answering prayer. In fact, if you want to look with me at one reference, look over at uh, chapter 7 and verse 11, and notice how the phrase, in heaven, when it's connected with prayer, is connected with answered prayer. Uh, look what he says. If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you would look sometime over at uh, Matthew 18 and uh, verse 19, 
You would also notice that Jesus said, wherever two people together are in agreement touching, everything, touching anything, it will be done, by, done for them by my Father who is in heaven. So this expression in heaven tells us that God delights in answering our prayers. He wants to. Not only can he answer our prayers because he's a great, great and wonderful God, but he delights to answer our prayers. Therefore, when we come, we come not only to a God who lovingly accepts us, but now says, pray with expectation because I'm a great king and I love to answer prayer. Uh, this year in our neighborhood, a uh, a brand new baby was, was born. Um, his name is Oscar. Isn't that a great name for a brand new baby? And a couple of weeks ago, we went to Oscar's home and we gave some gifts to him and uh, to his two older sisters who are two and four. Uh, Thursday night, um, Oscar's father came over with Oscar in his arms and the two little girls to hand deliver us a thank you note. And I thought to myself, wow, what a wonderful way to do this. Instead of just sending the note to us, the father wanted the girls to be a part of learning how to say thanks. And so he came over, not only with Oscar, the little baby, but the two little girls. And we invited them in. And as we did, the father, he sat down and there was Oscar in his arms. And uh, the two little girls sat at his feet. And they began to play with some toys that Ellen brought out for them. I call those toys Micah Nelson's toys because he's usually the one that is playing with those toys. But I thought to myself, what a good dad this is. He's loving. He's caring. He's personal. He's near. He's protective. He's guiding. He's also directive. At one point, he told the girls uh, they needed to stop playing with the toys because they had to go to an open house at their preschool. And I thought, what a wonderful dad this is. Is there anything that this father would not do for the best interests of these girls? And the answer is no. He will fulfill their very best expectations because he is able and he wants to. And now what Jesus is saying to us is that's the way that God is. He will fulfill his best expectations for us because he is loving Father and he is able in heaven. And so as we pray, we come with a sense of expectation. Let me give you a third way that we pray with God's priorities in mind. Thirdly, <clears throat> we pray for the reputation of the Father. Jesus says, when you come to the Father, say to him, Hallowed be your name. Now, names in the ancient world reflected who the person was. When you call my name, you think of my name as a title. Brian, that's the title by which I'm called. But names in the ancient world were not titles, but they were descriptions of someone's identity. Uh, the major Greek lexicon of the New Testament by Bauer, Art, and Gingrich 
has this very significant insight about the word name here. Listen to it. In the name, there is something real. A piece of the very nature of the personality whom it designates, expressing the person's qualities and powers. Now take that here. God's name then is bound up with the person of God himself. So God's name then is a reference to his reputation in the world. And when we say, hallowed be your name, what we are saying is, God, may your person, may your very being be treated as sacred. In fact, could I tell you this morning, as people come here to Bethel, and they worship with us, and they see us leave, if you were to say to me, Pastor Brian, what is the one dominant thing that you would want people to see as they come into Bethel? What is the one impression you would want to be left with them? This would be my desire. That in how we worship, and in how we approach God, and the way we leave this place, and how we live, that people would know we treat God as sacred. That would be my greatest desire for our congregation. Now what is interesting here is the passive phrase, hallowed be your name, is a very interesting thing in Greek grammar. It is what is known as a circumlocution. A circumlocution is a roundabout way of expressing something by saying it indirectly. And here when he uses the passive, this is a roundabout way of naming God himself as the subject. He uses the passive because in the circumlocution, it gives emphasis to what he wants us to pray. What Jesus is telling us is prayer is petitioning God to act in such a way that people would honor him. That's what we are to pray for. We are to pray, God, may you work in such a way that instead of being blasphemed and sinned against, people would worship you and honor you. This is our very first priority in prayer, and it certainly makes sense because any child who loves his or her father wants that father to be respected. That goes without saying. So what Jesus is saying is as we come to God in prayer, this is what we pray for. Oh God, in my praying and in my living, may you so work that your reputation is honored by the answers to my prayers and by the way that I live. Jesus says we are to pray for the reputation of the Father. Thursday night, we had our first team dinner with the parents and the players of the varsity football team here in Marquette. We were all sitting in the school cafeteria, chit-chatting, wondering how in the world is this going to go, when all of a sudden, all the players were asked to remove their hats. A nod was given to the quarterback of the team, and he stood up at the head of the player's table. He said, let's pray. 
He thanked God for the food. And he asked God for his help as they played football. When he was done, I thought, did anyone notice this was in a public school? That is not supposed to happen here. God is to be kept out of the schools, and he is to be relegated to our private lives. He is not to be acknowledged. And I thought, how unique is this, that the leader of the team, who is respected by all of the players, is leading in prayer. I learned that that quarterback is a Christian. He attends one of the Bible-believing churches here in Marquette, and he wants to be a leader. There are other boys on that team that I know are Christians and well, as well. And how must this have affected them to see their quarterback, whom they all look up to and respect, not being afraid to acknowledge God? To see him stand at the head of their table and say, God exists. God is worthy to be thanked. And the only way that anyone accomplishes anything by which they succeed in this world is by his help. And all I could say is, thank you, God, for bringing this about. I never thought I would ever again see prayer at a school event. I never thought I would happen to see that. And all you can say is, Lord... Raise up more young people who are not afraid to publicly honor you in front of their peers. You see, we do not simply pray, Lord, get our kids through school. That's all about us. That's all about meeting our needs that we think that we have. Rather, we pray, Lord, help our kids in school to honor you. That's praying with God's reputation in mind. Notice finally, finally number four. We are to pray in submission to the Father. Jesus says in verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this phrase, thy kingdom come, is a reference to the time of Jesus' future return and the setting up of his kingdom. Did you know the earliest Christian prayer in the New Testament is the prayer Maranatha? You will find it in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Maranatha. And Maranatha simply means, O Lord, come. It is a prayer that Jesus will return and establish his rule on this earth. And in that kingdom, when Jesus does... He will rule and reign in righteousness, and His will will be accomplished. Then the will of heaven will come down to earth, 
as the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever, are we not waiting for that great day? That's what we mean when we say, Lord, Your kingdom come. And just as Your will is now done in heaven, when we pray Maranatha, O Lord, come, and He comes and establishes His rule, then the will of heaven will be done on earth. By the way, it's interesting how Jesus describes this just a little bit later. I won't ask you to turn there with me, but listen to what that's going to be like in Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43. Listen to what that day is going to be like. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's that day that we are praying for. But now we've got to say this. If that's what we want for the future, surely is that not what we want for the present? Isn't it? No disciple would ever want to pray selfishly for our will to be done. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 12, 2, that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. It cannot be improved upon. So therefore, in every situation, when we are like the Lord Jesus, dealing with issues in our lives that we may not understand or may not know the answers to, we pray, nevertheless, not my will, but finish it with me, but thine be done. If that's what we want in the future, then certainly in the little plot of ground that, that we now inhabit, that's what we want in the present. This expresses the heart's desire of every disciple. So think about what this means in our praying. Lord, may I pray only for the things that are in your will. And Lord, when I don't know what your will is, may I say, Lord, you decide. I do not know what is best, but Lord, I pray that your will would be accomplished. When we are praying for the salvation of souls... We pray not only that they would come to know Jesus so that someday they could go to heaven, but far more importantly, we pray that they would come to know Jesus so now they can live under His Lordship. If that's the goal of where we're headed, to live under the Lordship of Christ, how do we pray for the salvation of souls? That they would come to know this great God that we love and loves us so much, and then begin to live now under His Lordship. Oh, we pray this way. Lord, I'm waiting for Your kingdom to come. But may I not just wait for Your kingdom to come, May I obey the king right now. If I want his kingdom and his righteousness and his rule to come, oh Lord, as I pray now, may I obey that king each and every day in my life. By the way, did you notice here that in this prayer there is no request that we would grow spiritually? 
As you look throughout the entire Lord's Prayer, there is no prayer that says, Lord, help me grow spiritually. And we say, well, why is that? Well, spiritual growth does not begin by looking within and uh, asking that we would grow from the inside out. Rather, spiritual growth begins when we look at God. Spiritual growth begins as we look away from ourselves and we see the God that we serve, the God who loves us and has done so much for us, and then we begin to discern His will, and as His glory and His purposes and His character capture our vision, we are drawn after that vision, and that's where spiritual growth begins to take place. And so Jesus says to us, we are to pray in submission to the Father. Lord, it's about your kingdom. It's about your will. And when I become wrapped up in that, there's a vision that draws me heavenward. Some of you know that many, many years ago, in the 50s and 60s, there was a great baseball player for the New York Yankees by the name of Bobby Richardson. He was a teammate of Mickey Mantle, and they won many World Series. Bobby Richardson was also a very great Christian man. In fact, he left the Yankees in the prime of his career to devote himself to the ministry. Do you know I knew Bobby Richardson's son, Robbie Richardson? Uh, played softball against him. I should say he played softball against me is the way it really went. But Robbie is a strong believer as well. And one day uh, at a fellowship of Christian athletes banquet, his famous father, Bobby, was invited to pray. When the time came, he stood up at this banquet filled with all kinds of Christian athletes and those who uh, adore athletes. And this is what he prayed. These simple words came out of his mouth. He said, Dear God, your will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. And then he sat down. When that becomes the passion of our life, then we are praying according to God's priorities. When it's His will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, that has so gripped our hearts that that's what we long to live for, then our prayers will be in God's priorities. Let's take a moment, shall we? And let's bow our heads together. Just before I lead us in closing prayer, I wonder today if you even know the Heavenly Father. Have you been delivered out of darkness and into light? Have you been transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's dear Son? 
Do you understand the uh, affectionate intimacy that Jesus is able to bring you into with a God who says, I used to be your judge, but now I want to be your daddy, your papa. If you have any doubt today whether your soul has been saved, and you have the absolute assurance that you have been born again, I would like to lead you to trust Christ right now. You can do that right where you're sitting. You can say to God from your heart to His something like this, Oh God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I could never do anything that would gain your approval. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and my sins, and He rose again that I might have life. And right now, God, I repent. I turn from my own way, and I turn to you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life. Make me this very moment a child of God. And then would you say, Lord Jesus, now as a disciple, now as a Christ follower, I will follow you all of my days, God helping me. And then you may say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. For those of us who have lost sight of God, for those of us who are living for lesser priorities, for those of us who've grown careless about his reputation, his kingdom, and his will. Wherever that carelessness is crept in, may we today confess it to God. Whether it be a point of disobedience, whether it be a, an area of sin, whether it be something that we know God is speaking to us to do, whether it is some relationship that needs our attention. May we say to the Lord today, Father, I want this God vision of my life to be restored where it needs to be, that I might not only pray in the right way, but I might live in the right way. Blessed Lord, today, thank you for the incredibleness of these simple words. Thank you today for the miracle of divine grace. Thank you that if God is our Father, that is enough. There is nothing now we need to fear. And thank you that there is one God, and that God loves me. And we pray today with his acceptance. We pray expecting the very best from him. We pray that he may act to bring about the exalting of his own reputation. And we pray that we will live in submission till Jesus comes.
and we see him face to face. We'll thank you and praise you for Jesus' sake. As we close our service this morning, we won't be singing the Lord's Prayer as we already sang it. And so uh, let's stand together. And I'm going to invite our pastors and their wives and our elders and their wives to go first. And then <clears throat> you may be dismissed. And have a great day in the Lord and a great week as we serve Him. God bless you.